Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 is where we left off last week and where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through this beautiful letter called 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the seat rack in front of you. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find 1 Timothy chapter 4 on either page 780 or 992 of that Bible. Two different page numbers, but they're the same copy, same version of of the Bible, just different printings of it. So that's why the page numbers are different. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible as our gift to you. I think you'd be helped if you follow along uh, as, as we work through this text. That's what is our custom here. We just preach and teach through books of the Bible a vast majority of the time. And so we are in the second half of 1 Timothy 4. Now here's what's interesting about the text this week is that it is, in a sense, kind of a job description for me and other pastors and ministers. And so... Uh, I think you get a kind of front row seat uh, in observing what pastors, church leaders should uh, do, what their responsibilities are, what they're called to do in the life of a local church. But obviously it has more implications than just in my life. The health of the church and the witness of the gospel is at stake here. So in just a moment, I'm going to read and pray. And I think in this text, we see many things, but in particular, I want us to focus on on the marks, four marks in particular, of a faithful ministry. While you're finding 1 Timothy 4, let me mention that next Sunday we're going to take a break out of our uh, series through 1 Timothy, and we have a guest that will be joining us. Dr. Crawford Loritz is a well-known national and really international uh, pastor and speaker and author who uh, is a pastor of a church up in Roswell, Georgia, up in North Atlanta, Fellowship Bible Church. And through a connection here, Ron and Mary Mullins, who are members of our church, know Dr. Loritz personally. And through their friendship, we were able to invite Dr. Loritz to come and speak to us next Sunday. So he's taking a Sunday out of a very busy schedule at his church up in Roswell to drive down and to speak to us uh, about life as a Christian and this time and day and age and in the culture that we're facing. I'm really excited about you being exposed to a man who is such an excellent expositor and teacher of God's word who I think will really edify and encourage us. And so please do uh, be looking forward to that. Maybe invite a friend. Dr. Loritz is really, he's he's just a wonderful teacher and communicator. He's actually, if you're familiar with the Gospel Coalition, which is a network of churches internationally that we are very connected to and find a lot of of, um, uh, affinity towards, he is a council member of the Gospel Coalition, and I'm really excited about you hearing from Dr. Loritz next Sunday. All right, with that, let me read our text in 1 Timothy 4. And um, after that, I'll pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor, Timothy, who is pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus, which would be like modern-day Western Turkey. Paul planted the church there in Ephesus, and we read the story of that planting of the church in Acts chapter 
19, I believe it is, or, or maybe a little earlier, Acts 18 and 19, where the uh, bringing of the gospel to that city literally turned that city upside down. Uh, Paul confronted the idols and the pagan worship that was in Ephesus, planted the church there, a much, much disruption, and then leaves this young man to pastor the church and is now writing a letter back instructing him on what the church should look like and how, it should, how the church should live out what it means to be a community of God. And what's at stake here is not merely just order in the local church, but the church's ability to be a display of the gospel to an onlooking world, which is the purpose of the church. And that applies to us today here as well. You you realize we're not just here to sort of, you know, appease ourselves or to go through some religious practice. What's at stake here is of monumental eternal significance that God through us I mean, think of our lives. Think of your own life right now and just how maybe mm, dissatisfied maybe you are with the current state of your own sanctification. Think about just kind of how ordinary and average you feel. And then kind of project on, go ahead and do it, project it on everybody else right right around you. We're all kind of like, we're all sort of messed up, right? I mean, you may be intimidated by the person sitting next to you. They look like they have it together. Ah, they don't. They don't. I promise you they don't. And think of that that's just like the people that Paul is writing, that Timothy's pastoring. And yet, through people like us, ordinary people, God intends to put on display his grace to an onlooking world so that it would become so beautiful, so attractive, so irresistible, that he might use us, just kind of complicated, raggedy folks, (laughs) to be the means by which he furthers his gospel and his work in our time and age. That's amazing. And this book is written for that end. So let me read 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, we need your help. We need the illumination that can only come by your Holy Spirit to understand this text. The Christians in this room need to be encouraged, exhorted, spurred on, to 
living the life that you've called us to by your grace. And those in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ need a miracle of sovereign grace. They need what only you can give, new life and the gifts of faith and repentance that come as fruit of that new life. Would you give those things now, I pray, liberally, graciously, for the glory of your name and for our joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four marks that I think we see in this of a faithful ministry that Paul commends this younger pastor towards. One, a faithful ministry is word-centered. Look again at verses 6 and 7, the beginning of the passage that we read in 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, if you put these things, now, is he referring when he says these things to just a preceding paragraph that we covered last week? Well, maybe. Or is he referring to the entire uh, previous portion of the letter up to this point? Not sure. Probably a little bit of both. But we know that it's content-based. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So I want you, I want us as a church, and we say this relatively often here, we want to be a church that has good doctrine, that has an understanding of what the Bible teaches, that we see it, that we interpret it, and that we graciously encourage one another to live lives in line with it. Now, for many of us, I think especially younger people that are in a kind of postmodern, sort of relativistic sort of culture, the word doctrine just, I think, sometimes has negative implications. But I want you to realize that all of us, all of us have doctrine. Doctrine is just a set of beliefs by which you are navigating life or viewing the world. And so maybe your subconscious doctrine or set of beliefs through which you're navigating the world is that doctrine isn't very important. That in and of itself is a kind of doctrine. It's a terrible one, but it's a doctrine. And what Paul is encouraging Timothy to to see here and to remember is that at its core, what we believe, what the Bible gives us is a set of of truths that God has given us that we are to wrestle with and that preachers, teachers, pastors, leaders in the church are tasked with delivering to God's people. So I hope you realize that I have nothing good to say in and of myself. And don't say amen right then. That's not, don't get too excited about that. But I hope you realize that I in and of myself have nothing in particular to share with you, but I am a mere like, I'm a, mere, I'm a mail carrier. And that's what every teacher of God's word, whether they're the pastor of a church or the, the leader of a small class or whatever level you're teaching at, what we are meant to do is to deliver God's word to God's people because God has given truth for his people so that they might see it, believe it, obey it, and find joy and safety. And then he says in verse Verse 7, he says, have nothing to do, so he contrasts good doctrine with what he's about to say in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Now, what were the myths, these irreverent, silly myths that the Ephesians were dealing with? Well, we're not exactly sure. He doesn't state them plainly. Maybe he's talking about some of the things that we looked at last week about how there were these people teaching that you shouldn't eat certain foods or that you should abstain from marriage. And isn't that the silliest of all myths that implicit in abstaining from marriage is abstaining from, you know, what married people do? (laughs) And if everybody followed the teaching of those false teachers in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, just kind of work it through philosophically, the human race would be extinct after uh, at least a generation or two. So that is the definition of an irreverent, silly myth. Maybe he's referring to that. Who knows? But let's not spend too much time thinking about what the Ephesians were dealing with. Let's, let's, let's shine the spotlight on us and our culture, myths that we, irreverent, silly myths that we deal with in contrast to the good doctrine that Paul tells Timothy he should teach the church. I just wrote down a few that I thought about as I brainstormed on my own heart things that I've wrestled with, the things that maybe I've sort of believed over the years and even still have to continually fight against. There's this notion, I think this is an irreverent, silly myth in our culture, and it's sort of woven into the American fabric of to strap up your you know, boots and work hard, and it's this idea that God helps those who help themselves. Well, Actually, (laughs) the actual opposite of true, God helps those who cannot help themselves. None of us can truly help ourselves in the sense of, of making ourselves right with God. But a little grain of truth about what it means to work hard sort of all of a sudden becomes an irreverent, silly myth that God is up there waiting for us to do something, to square ourselves away, and it completely destroys the gospel. Some of us buy into this subconscious, silly myth That misfortune is a result of God's judgment. Now, sometimes that may be the case. God may be bringing uh, his judgment on, but that is certainly not all the times the case. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible, Job, devoted to a righteous man who suffers great wickedness despite the fact that he was a righteous man, to give us a picture of the fact that we live in a fallen world and misfortune is part of living in a broken world, not God pouring out his specific wrath on us. Friends, the Bible says in Psalms that if we were to count our, if the Lord were to count our iniquities, who could stand? So I think many Americans sort of have this subconscious view of the world, which is kind of a karma view of the world. Like if you're kind of good to people, God will be pleased with you. And if you sort of, you know, you do mostly bad things, God's going to get you for that. And the problem is, if God really dealt with us like that, who among us can stand, right? Who among us could stand? That's not the way God is. Another myth, silly myth that we deal with is that on the other side of that, that material abundance or achievement is a sign of God's approval. Well, friends, very often material abundance can be God giving somebody over to their own obsession with this world. And there are some people that are so awash with stuff that they lose God. And the very thing that we, from a worldly perspective, perceive as a blessing is actually God giving somebody over to their idolatry and worship of things, created things, rather than the the creator. And then just one more, just to ruffle your feathers a little bit more. 
an irreverent, silly myth that we deal with is that God needs the leadership of a country to be godly or of a particular political party in order for God to work out his will in that country. Uh, Let me read that one again. That God (laughs) needs the leadership of a country to be godly or of a particular political party in order to work out his will in our country. Friends, if what we did for several months before we got into 1 Timothy when we looked at Daniel about these wicked kings and despite the fact that God's people were in exile in Babylon, God preserves his people no matter how wicked the ruler that is in charge of them is at that moment. doesn't mean that we need to to be good citizens and to think deeply about these things and be good stewards of the freedoms that we do have. But friends, the sky is not going to fall on the first Tuesday in November. And these silly myths are often so deeply ingrained in our subcultures and our families of origin, it just presses on me to realize that we need, we need each other, we need to be patient with one another, and we need great humility because... Um, Getting our subconscious, silly, irreverent myths challenged can be painful. And so Paul is telling Timothy here, teach good, clear doctrine and avoid these silly, irreverent myths and give people good teaching. But listen, we are supposed to be going somewhere with good doctrine. Good doctrine is not an end unto itself. So let's resist this temptation to be proud of ourselves just because we have maybe a right understanding of some particular theological issue or even the Bible in general and whole. That's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to worship God rightly. So so I want you to have this paradigm in your head. Theology, which is the study of God, just think about that word, theo, God, ology, theology, the study of God, should lead to, actually you guys are going from right to left, so let me start here. I always do it backwards. Okay. Theology, the study of God, should lead to doxology, the worship of God. Do you get that? See those two words in your mind. You may even write them down in your notes or whatever. Theology, the study of God, doesn't exist just in and of itself as if that's the end. Theology is meant to lead to doxology, which is the worship of God. And so we don't want to just have good doctrine or teach good doctrine so that we can be grumpy doctrine, you know, well, grumps, so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we have good doctrine, and all those people that watch those crazy Christian channels are crazy and weird. and Get off my lawn. <laughs> good doctrine should lead to Good doxology, the right understanding of God doesn't stop there. It leads us to the right worship of God because that's the point for which we were all created. And then Paul says in verse 11, just jumping ahead a little bit, he says to this young pastor, command and teach these things. Now that's anti-cultural in our day and age. Command. In the age of stating plain truths as if it's a question, you know, this kind of, this always sort of 
just stating things, and it's kind of a very postmodern, cool, hip way to do it. You know, I, I would be sitting on a stool with tight jeans rolled up and some glasses and maybe a cup of coffee on a circular little thing, and I could just kind of question. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little carried away. <laughs> but I could just sort of pose truth as if it's something to be considered, you know, because I sound a little bit higher than everybody else. I can just pose doctrinal truth as if it's a question that we need to have a conversation about and wrestle with. (laughs) I'm sorry, my biases are coming out and I, I realize that. But what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, command and teach these things. Young man, be sure about what the Bible says and deliver it to God's people. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't don't be a knucklehead about it. Be humble. Be compassionate. Have tears in your eyes and a soft heart. But give it to people because that's what they need. They don't need questions or possibilities. They need the plain truth delivered to them. Now, I have noticed just an observation about pastoral ministry I've noticed that people love it when their preachers, teachers, pastors have passion and conviction until they disagree with whatever the point they're making. Just just a little observation. There was this Scottish pastor by the name of William Still. He wrote this book called The Work of the Pastor. He ministered in Scotland back in the mid-1900s. And this is what he says, and there's a little quote here. I love it. I've read it before here, I think. It's so good. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He certainly is not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. (laughs) You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the word of God by his spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the word of God. And so, friends, I think that much of American Christianity comes from a place that I think is often unbiblical, comes from a good and earnest desire to engage our culture. But it takes an unhealthy trajectory when it tries to dumb down the the jagged edges of Scripture and the reality of the glory of God so as to appease people presenting the Christian life as if it is merely an optional add-on that will improve your life. Nothing could be more unhelpful as presenting a God who is there to serve us rather than delivering the plain truth of God's Word. Now, of course, we don't want to be fundamentalist or angry or cranky about it so as to unnecessarily ostracize people by our own personality. But we are to give God's word and God will do what God intends to do when his word is delivered boldly and compassionately and clearly. And... That's what Paul is commending Timothy to do here, and it's what he commends me to do and all the other pastors here, and it commends us as a congregation to, to hold fast to and to value. And if, you, if we ever got to a point in this church where we started to try and be hip and cool and started to lean on things other than the clear teaching of God's word, you should not walk away from this place. You should run. 
you should go find another church who cares more about God and his glory and the clarity of what God is doing rather than being cool to an onlooking generation. I, personally, I think all of that was better than just one amen, but you guys, you guys, <laughs> maybe the Holy Spirit's just kind of working some things out in your life. Two, <laughs> two, the second mark of a faithful ministry is it's focused on the life to come. Verse, the second half of verse seven there, he says, rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So I touched on this just a moment ago, but the Christian life can never be reduced to merely a set of instructional things that helps make life work better. Yes, if we follow Jesus on the whole, if we live according to the Bible, generally things will go better for us, probably. But that's not the point of the Christian life, because if we follow at times, God will call people to follow him to the point where they give their lives away for the sake of of the gospel and give their lives away in some foreign land and even lay down their lives. How pragmatic or worldly wise is that, that you would die for the sake of the gospel? Our um, intern here, our pastoral intern, Stephen Knowles, um, likes to wear this shirt, shirt that has the picture of a guy on it. His name is Jim Elliott. Are you familiar with Jim Elliott? He was a martyr for the Christian faith in the mid-1900s and the 1950s. He's married to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, and she recently passed away as a wonderful writer. Well, Jim Elliot and several other men uh, and their families wanted to take the gospel to a group of unreached people in Ecuador, and it was a, a, a headhunting tribe, and Jim Elliot and several of his friends lost their lives on a beach in Ecuador for the sake of the gospel. Now, it's not to say that God calls every Christian to die a martyr's death as a missionary in a faraway land. But that's what God called those men to do. And do you see how this sort of self-help gospel just doesn't really stack up with the true teaching of God's word? Will the principles of God's word lead us into a blessed life? Certainly, friends. But sometimes that blessed life causes us to give to detach ourselves from the things of this world so that we would attach ourselves to the next. And it's focused not just here on how life can be better here, but, but ultimately on eternal life. And I, before we move on to the third truth, I just have to mention, verse 8 says that bodily training is of some value. It's of some value. I mean, eat right and move. Burn some calories. But godliness is of value in every way. And I think we've... we've we're more prone to flipping that in our culture, right? I have to mention the obsession that our culture has with fitness and body image. I just do. Now, on behalf of the rest of us, 
to all of you that post a video of you power cleaning your personal best at your latest CrossFit workout on Facebook and Instagram, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We collectively want to say, you're awesome. (laughs) And we're not. (laughs) But I kid to say, guard your heart, friends. Guard your heart. We live in a world that is obsessed with fitness and body. And our fitness, is fitness and good diet a good thing? Absolutely. We should be good stewards as best we can. But it's not the ultimate thing and how prone we are to make how we look ultimate. Aren't we? We all are. And those of us that don't post those videos to Facebook, we're just as because we, we just don't want to, we know how terrible we could look if we did post those videos to Facebook. So we're, we're caught up in our own little obsession, right? So this goes to all of us, right? I love you. <laughs> Truth number three, or mark number three of a faithful ministry. Its hope is set on a God who alone can save. Its hope is set on a God who alone can save. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, we could preach a whole message on all of the false hopes that we set our hope on in this life. Even good things that when they become ultimate things, become idolatrous things. Maybe some of us are setting our hope on the prospects of a relationship. There are so many young soldiers, in particular young lieutenants that come through this church and I know where you are because I was exactly where you are 23 years ago when I came through Fort Benning and at that time I had even less hair and I had one eyebrow, just one Italian strip right across my forehead. (laughs) It's really thick, man. I got like this hairy Mediterranean gene, and I didn't, hadn't yet met my wife, and she did, hadn't yet cleaned me up. And all I could think about was getting a Ranger tab and a CIB, and defending our country and passing a training course in the army can be a good thing, a wonderful thing, but it can become an ultimate thing and ultimately become an idol. And it is so easy to set your hope on something other than the living God. Some of us are so consumed with who will or will not become president this November that we subconsciously are putting our hopes for the future of our children on two very, very, very flawed candidates. Nothing could be further than the Christian's true ultimate hope. 
Some of us are putting our hope into whether or not Stock and Aflac or Tesis or we get a promotion or we get that or whether or not our baby is this or that or excels in sports or is a prodigy or this and that. Friends, good things, when they become ultimate things, become idolatrous things. And Paul is reorienting our faith here, saying that we toil. And it's a fight, isn't it? Isn't it a fight? Because our hearts are weak and prone to these things. And he says it's a toil. We have to strive to set our hope on the living God. And listen to what he says about the living God. He is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? Well, I think we have three options as we look at that really important sentence. One option is what is called universalism, which is a belief that eventually all people are saved no matter what. So, regardless of how wicked somebody is, um, even if they're some pagan, idolatrous, false God-worshipping terrorist, eventually everybody makes it to heaven. I think very few people believe this, but there are some people that look at this verse and interpret it that way, that how could a good God send anybody to eternal punishment away from him? The problem with that perspective, and I guess if this were the only thing in the Bible that said anything about eternal destiny of all people, maybe we could arrive at that view because it says God is the Savior of all people. The problem with looking at this text, interpreting that way, is that even in this letter, in chapter 6, Timothy talks, or Paul talks to Timothy about eternal judgment. And then we read all throughout the rest of the Bible where clearly eternal judgment is mentioned for those that do not believe and trust in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, the second half of the chapter, Jesus talks about how on that day he will separate the sheep from the goats. Remember that quote I read from William Still about sheep and goats and that the goats do? If you didn't get that analogy, it's a biblical analogy that Jesus is saying that the true people of God who believe in Jesus, who are trusting in what he has done, are sheep, the sheep of the true shepherd. And that everybody else is a goat. And Jesus says, on that day will be a reckoning and those that are trusting in him will come to him for eternal life forever. And those that do not trust in him, he calls them goats in this picture, will be separated from him for eternity. Friends, there are only two types of people in this world. There's not black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian people or Americans and Californians or Mexicans or Europeans or there's just not. There are only essentially two different types of people in this world, those who are trusting in Christ and those who are not. So this interpretation of universalism falls apart. It can't be that. A second option would be that what Paul is speaking about here is a kind of common grace. 
He's not speaking when he says that God is the Savior of all people. He's not speaking of final salvation, but God, in a sense, is a kind of good keeper of all humanity, and he saves them not in a final salvation sort of sense, but in the sense that God's goodness, to some degree, is tasted by all people, regardless of whether or not they are following him in one of his true sheep. And while that is true... The doctrine, the understanding of common grace that God gives grace to all people regardless of whether or not they believe in his son Jesus and what he did on the cross, that is not clearly what Paul has in mind here. Paul never uses this word savior or this idea of God saving us in that sort of general common grace sort of way. So I think that leaves us to this third option which is clearly true, and it fits in the context of this letter, it is that God is the Savior, not of all people, every single person on the earth, regardless of whether or not they trust in Jesus, not all people without, distinct, without exception, but all people without distinction, meaning all kinds of people, rich people, poor people, smart people, not smart people. People who are from all walks of life. Church people. People who weren't raised in church. People who had Christian parents. People who didn't have Christian parents. People who seemed to be close to God in their childhood. People who are far away from God. He can and does save all manner, all types, all kinds of people. In fact, Romans 4, 5 says that God delights in saving the ungodly. That's good news. And when we see this text, it should cause our hearts to swell with joy and confidence and trust in a God who can and does save. So I think this text is saying that God saves all types of people. And even more than that, I think it's saying that the work of Christ is sufficient for all people, but it is only, we have to read that second part of the text there, especially, namely, only for those who believe. So in one sense, Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has enough sufficiency in his work for the salvation of all whosoever would trust in him but it is effective it's actual only for those who believe so friends once again paul is backing us into a corner and he is dividing everybody into two camps those who do not believe and are not saved, and those who do believe and are saved. Friends, this is what the Bible is all about. It cannot be boiled down to seven steps as to how to have a better Tuesday. Paul is saying here that the greatest truth, the most important thing in the world, is whether or not you are right with a holy God. And the only way you can be made right with a holy God is by trusting not in your own unrighteousness or your own relative morality compared to the guy next to you, but in what Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, has done for you and you must friends I plead with you you must you must consider that you must wrestle with that and I think that the only way back to a right relationship with your creator God creator God for eternity is trusting in Jesus and his righteousness and not in your own
That's the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to know how to live. All of that comes later. That's called the Christian life sanctification. Right now, the most important thing is in the universe is whether or not you are trusting in yourself before a holy creator God or whether you're trusting in his son Jesus, the perfect God-man who died and rose again for all kinds of people, even you, if you will trust in him. Now, Friends, that's the gospel. That's what the Bible's all about. But a word, just a word to those of you who either do not yet believe or maybe wrestle with doubt. And you may be wondering and wrestling with what I consider to be a valid and legitimate question. And you may be thinking, okay, Brad, I get it. I'm jacked up. I get it. I get that I'm responsible to a holy God. I get that Jesus is who the Bible says he is that he was fully God in eternity past. God the Son, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't quite understand all of that, but I, I see it in the Bible, and I think that's true. And that Jesus was not created, but he is God, eternal. And he became a man. He took on flesh. And where all of us have rebelled against God in some way, Jesus has completely obeyed God. I believe that he did die on a cross, and on the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son because Jesus could bear it because he's holy and because Jesus was not just a righteous man but because he's infinitely holy. He has enough holiness to absorb the wrath of God and satisfy it and turn it into favor and grace. And then Jesus rose again. I believe that he rose again. But here's my question, Brad. I get all those things, but why would, even, why would God even make it this way? Why would he even allow the fall to happen in the first place so that all of this saving was even necessary? Why does the pathway to God's glory and salvation need to happen through the fall and the subsequent human suffering? Well, let me just say to you, dear friend, if that's a question that you wrestle with, you have put your finger on what I think to be the most difficult question of all, that to some degree on this side of eternity, we will never fully be able to answer. And if we could fully answer it, that means that we could define God and his purposes, and that would be a much scarier place than not really understanding the question, it's the answer to the question in itself. Let me just point you in the direction of a few thoughts to wrestle with. Here's a quote, a helpful quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with C.S. Lewis, a wonderful British author in the mid-1900s, thinker, writer. Uh, He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series and many other things and many books, Mere Christianity, a Christian classic. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, he, he points us, he doesn't This is an unanswerable question, this side of eternity, but he points us in a trajectory that I think is helpful. He says, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things, this is important, as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center Boy, does that not cut against every natural American subconscious belief? Man is not the center. 
God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. He's quoting Revelation 4, verse 11. We were made, listen to this, not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. And so what I think Lewis is saying is is that we are not the center of the universe. And our definition of love is very one-dimensional and human-centered. There's this famous Polish scientist back in the 1500s. His name is Nicholas Copernicus. I have a bobblehead of Nicholas Copernicus in my office. And Nicholas Copernicus came up with this theory that was scandalous at the time. In fact, the church branded him as a heretic. He said, up to that point, see, humanity had believed that the sun was rotating around the earth. And our boy Nick looked at the heavens and he said, you know, something's fishy here. I don't know what it is. He said, wait a minute, I I actually think that we are just one object in this solar system and that we're actually rotating around the sun. The sun is the center, not us. And he was branded a heretic and who's this clown? Come to find out, our boy Nick was right. And in fact, he's immortalized through this phrase, a Copernican revolution. All of us need to go through a Copernican revolution to realize that mankind is not the center of the universe. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 115 verse 3. He says that our God is in, friends, you need this verse to understand God. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever, all that he pleases. And now listen to what Paul says in in Romans chapter 8. Again, these don't answer the questions, but they point us in a humble perspective. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, all that's going on in humanity, Hurricane Matthew, terrible tragedy, terrorists, wicked people, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, meaning God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Friends, what I think that means is that God is in charge in wise, mysterious, unseen, eternal ways. He is in charge of everything that happens. And God in his goodness, and I use that term intentionally, in his goodness and love has deemed to allow the fall so that he can rescue a great multitude of people from the fall because that is the most loving thing that God could do. Think of it this way. 23 years ago, I think I told you about this diamond ring that I bought for a girl I met and about how, you know, the prongs were not supposed to pay. Well, another thing that I did when I went to that jeweler that day 23 years ago and emptied out my entire savings account 
except for $100. I spent everything that I had on an engagement ring for Jennifer except $100. Not wise financially. I'm not saying do that. I knew that the army was going to pay me again at the end of the month, but I bought everything I had. And the jeweler, who happened to be my future wife's grandfather, I remember when he was showing me diamonds. What, did he just put the diamond on top of the glass counter and say, oh, look at this diamond? No, 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 no. He was trying to show me how impressive that diamond was. And so he whipped out this little black velvet cloth, and he put that black velvet cloth down. And he put that diamond on that black velvet cloth, and that diamond, well, it popped. Let's put it that way. Friends, that analogy is so tiny and so minuscule. But I think it shows us some purposes of God. And that this world, this universe, is radically God-centered. Wrestle with those questions but admit that our definition of love and goodness and glory is so minimal that we can't fully understand God's purposes. Just know this, that right now you hear the knowledge that the, the creator God of all the universe has made available for you. He has made available to you the way to be in right relationship with God, with Him. So rather than shaking your fist at a holy God and saying, how can you do this? Run, 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 answer those, ask those questions, but run to the holy God who alone has made a way for you to be with Him forever through the work of His Son. And then just finally, before we move on, just consider the alternatives. If you wrestle with that and you cannot believe that somehow God has mysterious purposes in even allowing the fall, consider how unsettling the alternatives to that are. Then your picture is of a God who is reacting to the evil in the universe. And who knows what lies ahead in that universe. Fourth, quickly, finally, the fourth truth of a faithful ministry is that it is not just taught, but it's lived. And this is humbling as I even consider my own life and how, how, full of, um, how full of just even contradiction my own life is. Paul says in verse 12, Let no one despise you for your youth. That used to apply to me, but I'm kind of getting past that now. But set the believers an example in speech. Wait, you guys are supposed to give me a little bit more like, oh, no, not you, Brad. No, you're still young. You missed an opportunity to encourage me. Thank you for that. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. You realize how much we want to fill our gatherings with Scripture. That's why we read. We read Scripture at the beginning, in the middle. We preach through Scripture. We sing Scripture. We read Scripture scripture at the end. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. 
Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Just a few things. I want to end quickly. We see this exhortation in the life of the leader, the pastor, the pastors. It is a life of progress. Uh, Some of you are so kind to say to me that you are receiving more benefit from my preaching. Some of you that have been at Cross Point for all 11 years. We started this church 11 years ago, uh, really kind of in our living room, and then moved to, uh, took this core group of people and moved to a school that we rented out for five years, and then we moved into this building six years ago, and there's this sweet, sweet sister in this church who every now and again comes up to me and says, oh, I, your preaching has improved, and I'm like, I'm great, I'm like, I'm, thank you, but I don't, sometimes I'm like, was it that bad? <laughs> anyway, whatever, but there's this exhortation that the life of a leader should be a life of progress, and it should be lived out in front of people, right? That you should, we should, you should know me. I mean, it doesn't mean like I'm going to be best friends or the pastors can be close to everybody in the church, but there's this sense that the life of a leader should be a public life and people should know him. He shouldn't just sort of mysteriously beam into the congregation on a Sunday and you never know where he is and he has like a personalized parking spot and nobody can see him and you just kind of, you have to go through 14 levels of people to get to him and all of a sudden you know, there's people that are just like gatekeepers, like get away, get away. That's just unhealthy, Right? What's at stake towards this gospel that is preached and then lived out in a consistent way, not a perfect way, but in a consistent way? What's at stake is, Paul says it, our, our collective salvation. We, he will save, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. And also in the life of the congregation, the gospel that we believe and the doctrine that we hold closely to, hold dear, we need to live it out. What does this mean? Just a few quick thoughts and then we end. It means, it doesn't mean that we as Christians in this life by any means have arrived. I think it means that we fight for a culture in our church where leaders are good examples but real people. And it's okay for them to be real people. It's okay. There have been Sundays in the past 11 years that began in La Casa Evangelista with an argument between Jennifer and I, and we have wanted to, and in fact a few times have, shouted at each other as I was walking out the door to preach the gospel to everybody because Jesus is alive. And there's a whole lot more she could say about that. And it means that we strive. Let me just let me just mention this: that like I am the chief of the train wrecks. I'm the conductor of the train that wrecks. I hope you know that. Thank you for not saying amen, by the way. (laughs) And finally, it means that we strive to create an environment and a culture in this church 
where it's okay to not be okay. Where it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to just be okay with not being okay. Do you get that? That's the beautiful tension of a gospel, Bible-saturated, spirit-dwelling congregation. Oh, that, that we would fight for that. That we would fight for that. Let's pray. Father, take these words and do what you will do with them in the hearts of believers and in the hearts of any unbelievers. Lord, do what only you can do. Open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.